Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that somehow gets more politically radical with each passing episode. I'm your host, Amanda. Today, we're going to finish our conversation about off-price with Celicia. We will reminisce about the beginnings of the off-price industry, and we'll discuss the challenges of making new product for these retailers. First, some words from me. (laughs) It's like a lot of words. Sorry, guys. When I try to distill my concerns about the fashion industry, it always comes down to two major themes. One is the incredible waste of resources and materials and the subsequent pollution of our planet. I talk about this a lot. It's always on my mind. (laughs) The other is the tremendous mistreatment of workers across the world. As we've discussed, so many people are involved in the clothing we buy, from the people making the trims like buttons and zippers, to the textile mills, to the people cutting, sewing, and packing the finished garments. And don't forget the wash houses and the label makers. And then there are the people working in warehouses and distribution centers domestically, as in in our country. And then there's the retail workers, like the people actually working in the stores who are also experiencing all sorts of fucked up things like wage theft, lack of a living wage, inconsistent hours, sexual and emotional abuse, and so on. I mean, they're all losing their jobs right now. My friend Michelle, who is a guest on our upcoming denim episodes, that's going to be starting on our next episode, sent me a bunch of academic papers about different aspects of the fashion industry. Spoiler, they are all pretty dark. And of course, I want to share some of the things I've learned from them with you. In previous episodes with Janine, we have touched on the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh. And maybe you remember reading about this, maybe not. I'm one of those people who reads like five articles about everything that happened, but I'm also a mega speed reader, which is great because then I can absorb a lot of news, but it's also bad because when I go on vacation, I can't bring enough books. I blaze through them too fast. Anyway, so I'm always reading a lot more current events than other people. So I thought I would give you a little primer on what happened there. So this happened in 2013 and it was an eight story factory complex that collapsed in Bangladesh. Initially, the death count was estimated at 400 people which is a lot, but the final death count was 1,127 people, mainly young women. How did this happen? I mean, it's easy to say, oh, you know, it's a third world country. Things are different there. It was an accident. Shit happens, you know, whatever. But this accident was the result of many different aspects of our current fashion industry on a collision course. More than 100 years ago, Americans' clothing was made domestically. We've talked about that in the past. And unsurprisingly, perhaps, there was little regulation of the clothing manufacturing industry. Why, you ask? Well, to put it plainly, because the workers were women. And you know what? Not much has changed. Today, in 2020, 80 to 85% of total global fashion workers are women. So going back to 100 years ago here in the U.S. when we were making clothing here, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, it's one of those things you talk about in history class sometimes, depending on what you're studying. It happened in New York City in 1911, and it was one of the deadliest industrial accidents in U.S. history. 
we'll go into more detail about it on a future episode because Michelle sent me a really great paper about that as well. But I think telling you a little bit sets some context for what we're about to talk about in Bangladesh. 146 workers, primarily women, once again, died either from the fire and smoke inhalation of the actual, you know, burning or by jumping to their deaths to escape the fire. How did this happen? Well, the doors were locked as a loss prevention measure. Loss prevention is the industry term for protecting profit by preventing loss via theft. So basically, the factory owners were nervous that employees would steal merchandise and materials. So they locked them in the factory during the shift. And therefore, they couldn't escape the fire. There was tons of public outrage after the Triangle Fire, right? Of course, as there ought to be. So laws were put in place to protect workers. But it wasn't easy because these workers were seen as sort of lesser people, less intelligent, less upwardly mobile, somehow unskilled, even though they were performing a skilled job. Do you know how to sew a shirt? It's not easy. I want you to keep that mindset in mind. As we discuss Bangladesh, this idea that factory workers, retail workers, warehouse workers, that they are somehow less valuable than, say, executives. The primary driver of the Bangladesh factory collapse was our obsession with low-cost clothing. I bet you saw that coming. As I've discussed in previous episodes, we pay less for clothing now in 2020 than we did in the 90s, nearly 30 years ago, while every other aspect of our life has increased in price by about 60%. So crazy. When I say that out loud, when I see it on paper, it blows my mind every single time. Like there's just no reason for this. As labor in high wage countries, you know, think the US, Canada, Australia, countries in Europe became more expensive in the 20th century, more and more garment manufacturing moved overseas. And we've discussed this in the past. We know this. Trade deals made this even easier. And while we think of China as the biggest manufacturer of our clothing, which it is, Bangladesh is second in line with about $20 billion in business each year. Bangladesh and Cambodia have been able to swoop in and pick up more business as China has slowly grown more expensive in terms of labor. So for example, the monthly entry-level wage of $40 in Bangladesh is a quarter of the same wage in China. By now, you know how it goes. We want cheap clothes and fast fashion companies want you to buy a lot of clothes while they make the maximum amount of profits. So costs have to be really low. If you're in the leadership role at this retailer and you want to maximize your margin, but not raise costs for your customer, you're going to say, we're going to Bangladesh. It's cost a quarter of China. And China's already really cheap, like significantly cheaper than making clothes here in the U.S., as we've discussed in the past. You know what? It occurred to me that you might not know where Bangladesh is because I had to look at a map to remind myself. And I'm nerdy about stuff like that. So it's east of India and west of Myanmar and Thailand. It's like in Southeast Asia. It's not a very big country. In Bangladesh, a 2001 report by the National Labor Committee indicated that 85% of garment workers were young women, which is in line with how it is today, and they were aged 16 to 25. They worked 12 to 14 hour days, seven days a week, with occasional mandatory, are you ready for this, 
20 hour shifts, 20 hours. Sewers were paid 13 to 18 cents an hour. That's below the national minimum wage, but it gives you an idea of how loose the government oversight was and may still be. And while child labor has been legally ended in Bangladesh, it is estimated that there are about 7 million underage workers. Now, much like the former U.S. garment industry, most of the workers are women. And in some ways, it gives them more social freedom and more control over what happens in their families. That's the power of bringing home a paycheck. It's not dissimilar to what happened in the United States in the 60s, 70s, and 80s as women joined the workforce. Yet they work long, hard hours in dangerous environments for very little money. Factories are still dangerous with inadequate ventilation and evacuation routes and subpar toilet facilities. Entrepreneurs in rural areas of Bangladesh are aware that while they don't have a lot to offer in terms of natural resources and capital, they do have a wealth of ready and willing workers who will work for pennies. This included the owners of the Rana Plaza factory complex. The mayor of the town was notorious for overlooking safety issues and signing off permits just to move things along faster. So there was no rigorous safety inspection here. And you know what? The building was not up to code. First off, it was built atop a filled-in pond, which sounds pretty bad. Definitely not stable. You definitely can't build a large building on top of that. And it was originally supposed to be used for commercial use, but it was illegally converted to industrial use, which is also a big difference in terms of the, the weight of the equipment, the number of occupants. I mean, it's just a total shift in, in how the building will stand up to use, right? Even worse, an additional three floors were added on top of the building without approval. So we're making this building that is way bigger and going to hold way more weight than it's supposed to on top of a filled-in pond. I mean, this is a recipe for disaster. And the building materials themselves were below standard. It's horrifying, right? In general, public officials in Bangladesh, and really other countries as well, probably even our own, are so fearful of losing money on the table that they do not push for safety code adherence. If they shut down a project... It will simply move somewhere else. So it's in their best interest to let it slide. So yes, the officials and the owners of the factory were responsible, but so were we. And I'll get to that in a moment. Let's talk about fast fashion. I know, we talk about it all the time. But let's remind ourselves of the basic modus operandi of fast fashion. Delivering more product, much faster, at lower prices. So first off, fast fashion retailers want more product much faster. So they might say, hey, listen, we don't want forced overtime or children working. That's against our code of conduct. But then in the next email, they'll say, hey, I need 10,000 pairs of leggings by next week. So what's the factory going to choose? Well, they're definitely going to choose the financial reward of producing 10,000 pairs of leggings in a jiffy. And then there's the lower prices. This race to the bottom means that often agents and factories that were chosen by the fashion company are actually subcontracting to someone even cheaper. One thing that came up over and over again in the Rana Plaza press coverage was that none of the brands whose stuff was being made there knew about it. At first I was like, mm, I'm pretty skeptical, but 
honestly, there's little visibility into the process of subcontracting. I know that as a buyer, I'm sure many orders I've written over the years have been subcontracted, possibly sub-subcontracted, and I'm never the wiser. And these subcontractors, like the Rana Plaza factory complex, are willing to offer those bargain basement prices by cutting wages and, you know, building shoddy factories. And they will get it done fast for the retailer. In the case of Rana Plaza, the building's owners ignored warnings to avoid using the building after cracks had appeared the day before, like cracks in the building that were visible from outside that had actually forced the evacuation of the residences and businesses on the first floor. However, garment workers were ordered to return the following day, and you know what? The building collapsed during the morning rush hour. Why? Because they had deadlines to make or they risked missing business. Once again, 1,127 people, human beings like you and me, lost their lives the day Rana Plaza collapsed, all in the name of more clothes, more cheaply. And notice that I use the term people. I've been trying to use the term workers less and less. In one regard, you know, I, I want to honor their skills and their hard work, but I think it's too easy to d- dismiss workers as non-humans. So let's call them people. Let's call them humans. While there's been a lot of talk about making conditions in Bangladesh better, it's still not perfect. And these types of conditions exist all around the world. There's plenty of mistreatment of garment workers in the USA too, as we've discussed when we've talked about the manufacturing in LA. The human cost of our cheap clothing rises each day. It's not just the workers across the globe, from factories to warehouses to stores. It's also the environmental impact of manufacturing, shipping, and disposal of the clothes we wear and toss out. It's the insane amount of water required to make and dye our clothes when others suffer through brutal drought. And once again, company leaders are able to dismiss this by telling themselves that these people are somehow less valuable and this kind of stuff just happens. It's just the cost of doing business, right? That's the poisonous racism and classism that permeates not only the fashion industry, but our entire capitalist system. The workers are disposable. The upper class are not. This is also a good time to remind you that somewhere between two and $3 billion worth of orders were canceled on Bangladesh factories in the wake of COVID. We've talked about this before. And most of these orders were already produced. So now we're looking at one to two million, mostly female workers who are not being paid. They have no savings. We've already talked about how poorly they're paid. How are they supporting themselves and their families? How has this changed their social positioning? Are they finding themselves in more dangerous situations now that they aren't bringing home a paycheck? It makes you think a little bit before you put on your feminist t-shirt, right? I know this is hard to hear. I mean, it's hard to think about. But doesn't it make you want to do better? We must end fast fashion. And as I've mentioned before, many brands that we don't think of as fast fashion are, well, fast fashion. It's almost less about the price point and more about the brand's behaviors. Are they launching new product every week or even every day? Are there tons of deals, deals, deals? Does it seem like new trends are cycling through every month or so? Are they refusing to hashtag pay up on canceled orders? What's the quality of the product there? Is it made to last or is it synthetic? These are all things to think about, right? Because as I've said, Sometimes it's not the retail price that indicates 
fast fashion. You can make fast fashion and make a high margin and sell it at a higher price. It's still fast fashion. In order to subvert the status quo in fashion, we have to give our money when we need to buy something to brands, designers, and businesses that are doing things the right way. I'm working on a directory of these resources to add to our exciting new clotheshorsepodcast.com website. It's pretty much the only reason I made a website. Because like, it's 2020. Do you really need a website? If you or someone you know is a good candidate for the directory, reach out to me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. I know how hard it is for small businesses and designers to reach customers. So I thought this would be a great way for all of us to find them. Listen, friends, we can do this. We can make it happen. We need to remind ourselves daily that our money is as powerful as our vote. Let's vote for the right things. Okay, well, that's enough of me. Let's get into the second half of our convo with Celicia. Let's take a walk down memory lane of the history of off price, because I think this is really interesting, too, since it's such a huge part of our lives. Like, how did it get there? It began long ago, initially (laughs) as a way for department stores to sell their excess inventory, literally in the basement. So like Filene's basement, RIP, Filene's basement is gone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think it, yeah, I think it's been gone for a while. It was in the basement of the Filings department stores and all of the department stores had a bargain basement and you kind of see this a little bit still, but not as, not as much because now everyone's shipping their markdowns and their clothes out off to generally these off price stores. I don't even remember Filene's. I only really remember Filene's basement going downstairs. Me too. Me too. And they were always in a basement, even though they were no longer under a department store. I mean... Did we? I don't know if we had one in Philly when I was a teen, but uh, we definitely have had them other places I've lived across the country. There was also a Lomans, a Frida Lomans. Yeah, Lomans. Yeah, Frida, also R.A.P. Frida Lohman call, collected garment overruns from top labels and sold them at deep discounts from her Brooklyn apartment and turned that into a Twelve. chain. Yeah. But then TJ Maxx and Nordstrom Rack kind of emerged on the scene and everyone else a lot of them went out of business as TJ Maxx, Nordstrom Rack, Ross, these big guys began to grow. But there's so many other off-price retailers of the yesteryears. Like, do you remember Daffy's? Daffy's. Daffy's was, yeah, right in Center City. In that place. And it was, was fancy great. looking inside. Yeah. There was a revolving <laughs> door. It must have been like an old bank or what? Didn't it have mm-hmm. revolving doors? It did. And I remember it had, maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but the thing about Daffy's that was a little stressful is that uh the fitting room was just a room oh with everybody yeah 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 that was that was weird so not even the luxury that we get to experience in a tj maxx now of a separate stall to try on your clothes it was straight up just a room with a big mirror no it's almost like a sample sale like the whole store was a sample sale yeah yeah it was kind of crazy um another one that's still around uh, is Century 21. Oh, yeah. and it has appeared on an episode of Sex and the City, <laughs> if that sounds familiar to you. I mean, there's been other ones over the years. I grew up shopping at Gabriel Brothers, which was like the poor man's version of TJ Maxx. It was a lot more damaged stuff, a lot more irregulars. In the late 90s, you could find a lot of Genco jeans there. <laughs> so, And Fresh Jive, <laughs> brands that I really appreciated at that time. <laughs> There were still some like family owned department stores in Philadelphia, 
even um, like I Goldberg's, they sold. Oh yeah. They sold jeans and I don't know, just regular t-shirts and stuff. I mean, they're all gone now when I think about all of the department stores of our our youth and teenage years, they've all been bought by Macy's or gone away or Wanamaker's. I think Wanamaker's had yeah. sale stuff in the basement. Cause I kind of remember that. Yes. I think you're right. I remember that too. There were a lot of, like, there were a lot of chains that we had out in central Pennsylvania, like Hecht's and, uh, Hess's Boscov's. You remember Boscov's? Boscov's is still around. Boscov's rather because they Boscov's don't tend to have a basement. They put all of their closeouts on this like second floor, and it's the only thing up there really. It's like, or maybe it's a third floor. It's like the attic. Some people are still doing it. Most of them are just selling it off. You know, like they it's it's easier for them. So here's the thing: there are a lot less department stores now. It's all part of this retail apocalypse. So there's a lot less overstock and clearance inventory to buy. And ironically, the off-price business is bigger than ever. When you go into a Nordstrom rack, for example, like, yeah, as we've mentioned, there's a couple of racks of stuff from the stores. But a lot of the stuff in there is brands I've never heard of that you only seem to be able to get there. Yeah. As I've been in the industry longer, I have realized that a lot of these brands are actually what we call it nasty gal. We called them the downtown vendors. And that was because there was... That's, that's really... That's kind of funny, but yeah. Where we'd go to San Pedro Apparel Mart, you know, where there were all of these fast fashion brands. Or it's just factories putting a, you know, factory making something and putting a label on it. It's a brand. Yeah, just throwing a label on it. And it's it's cheap. It's fast fashion. It's very inexpensive. They're churning it out constantly. So I have seen stuff at all of these off-price retailers in the past couple of years that I see the label and I'm like, oh, we used to buy from that that brand at Nasty Gal, so I know them. That's funny. I mean, I think some of it's probably private label, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, but I bet there's probably one or two private labels in the mix. Maybe people would see those more often, but then the rest of it, I think, yeah, is, is like just that vendors with a non-identifiable or not memorable brand with a hang tag that looks like Mm -hmm. a lot of other brands totally totally so you're like oh this must be a real brand right Mm -hmm. when we talk about real brands i don't know what else to call them national brands maybe sure a lot of brands always sort of look down at off price as brand damaging this is something everywhere i've worked we talk about all the time like would this be brand damaging distribution channels yeah yeah, position positioning if we put stuff on sale will it damage the integrity of our brand will make it less appealing and aspirational blah 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 well, now these brands are realizing that if you can't beat them, you need to join them. So these brands are developing cheaper lines created specifically at a lower cost for these off-price retailers. And their hope is to bring in new younger customers because ironically, even though 75% of the clothes being bought here in the United States are at these places, it still is a primarily older audience. I mean, that's shifting, right? I, I've i also sat in meetings where they're like, all millennials want to do is go to TJ Maxx. The intellectualization around uh, where millennials want to spend their money, it's like so frustrating. Because yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like, I get it. The millennials killed Applebee's or whatever, but it probably needed to be put out of its misery. And the millennials killed Macy's. I mean, I don't know. It's also silly. 
it's also going to be there's there'll be the new pandemic filter but there you don't see any basics i think that's part of it too yeah i think so i think so i i think it's hard to shop at these stores and find a wardrobe that's like really versatile because everything is sort of these one-offs that you know were available fabric or they couldn't sell them at the department store i mean there's all kinds of reasons it's there but often you don't find a lot of wardrobe builders there so it would be hard to I don't know. You just have to keep buying and buying and buying stuff there. And it's all very specific. Like the food, you know. Yeah, the food. <laughs> Trendy new pasta shapes. I mean, imagine doing your grocery shopping only at TJ Maxx. You would die. You of, would die. Of some kind of malnutrition <laughs> that would be terrible along the way. And I think buying all your clothes there would be a similar experience because, yeah, you could get underwear and bras and socks and shoes and pants and t tops and stuff there. But, like, even... I think about the bra and underwear selection. It's always so specific. Yeah. So I was going to say, I don't think, I think the model of like the hunt and getting back in, like they can't just have racks of hoodies, like that don't right. have a bunch of stuff all over them. Cause when you go back the next time, it's another Navy sweatshirt. Yeah. Yeah. It has to have the feeling that this is on trend. This is hot this month. I, it just ended up here. I don't know how it got here, but it's my, I won. <laughs> I found it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's exciting, you know? So we're going to start talking now about the non-closeout stuff at the store, as in the stuff that is made just for off price. So I wanted to start by talking about the hashtag pay up movement, which has applied to a lot of brands that we already know. They have canceled orders and are not paying for them, but the off price stores are not exempt from this. They've been engaging in this behavior too. So first I wanted to talk about Ross. Ross did some pretty shady stuff here uh, during coronavirus. And I'm not condemning Ross. I'm just saying the facts. I know a lot of other retailers did the same thing. Ross sent a letter to vendors in March saying it would cancel all merchandise purchase orders through June 18th due to the impact of the coronavirus. So as we've talked about before, if you send someone a letter in March saying you're canceling all the orders through June, all that stuff already exists. It's already, it's made. It's already packed for, and it's probably already packed and about to hit the distribution center. Yeah, it's definitely, it's either packed and ready to ship or it's on the boat already or it's already here waiting to get shipped onto Ross, right? I didn't know that. That makes me sick. Makes me sick, yeah. So the workers who made that stuff will now not be paid. Once again, they already made it. They put in the work. And nor will the suppliers. We think so much about the people sewing the clothes, but we forget about the suppliers who made the zippers, the fabric mills, the button factory, all these people, their workers aren't going to get paid either. So then, okay, that's bad enough. But this, Salisha, this other part is going to upset you because it upset me too. They also said that they would extend payment terms on all outstanding invoices to 90 days. So to break that down for you. What? Yeah, I know. This is a big deal because vendors generally tend to have net 30 terms, which means that the retailer will pay the vendor within 30 days of receiving the order. So it's not... It's most, already on the floor. Like there's... It's, yeah, they're already selling it. So most of the time, I mean, and I have had exceptions in my career. You or I go to buy something, we pay for it before it ships, right? Or as it ships. Like that's just how it is as a customer to buy things. But as a retailer to buy things, you get credit. And these net 30 terms are pretty standard. If you are a brand that does not have good credit, which trust me, I've worked for them, you may have to pay upon shipping, but in most situations, you are going to pay after it's been received, put away, and already selling. 
So extending this to 90 days, which is three months, means that factories aren't getting paid on time either. And therefore, the workers probably aren't. I mean, this is and just just declare that via a letter with no heads up. And those vendors have already paid for all of the raw materials. And right. Even if it's just if we think about just fabric, the fabric's already made two months before they or the fabric is in work two months before, you know, they're even getting it to cut and sew. Yeah. Yeah. And that fabric mill definitely doesn't have like six month terms because they had to buy their raw materials from somebody else. Right. Right. There's a whole chain down to the person who grew the cotton, you know, like people aren't getting paid here. And I read an article a couple days ago about how hunger is like out of control across the world. People are so poor right now. They can't even eat. And these kinds of situations are perpetuating that and making the problem worse. Because most people who work in these factories, they don't have a savings account to draw on. They are, like a lot of Americans, living paycheck to paycheck. So this is devastating. Imagine if you went to work next week and your boss said, I'm not going to pay you for three months, but then I'll pay you. What would you do for three months if you didn't have three months of savings? What are you going to do? I mean, I guess you could max out your credit cards. What if you don't have credit cards? This is mm-hmm. this is what we're looking at here. And Ross is not the only place that's done this. I can't underscore that enough. Uh, There's also concern that TJ Maxx canceled orders on factories in Bangladesh and India, once again causing a cascade of... Nordstrom was turning orders away at their warehouses. Besides the stuff that they did cancel, they weren't accepting accepting shipments. Yeah. Once again, this stuff is already made. The labels are sewn on. It's in the poly bags. It's in the boxes. I mean, this is bad. I have worked places that have canceled like this in, in my career, uh, you know, maybe because we were having financial problems or, or we were overbought or whatever. But this is such an epic scale that we're looking at people losing their homes, their ability to eat, get medical care, take care of their families. This is really bad. I know that some retailers have given into the pressure of all of us pushing on them to hashtag pay up and they have agreed to pay all of their factories and suppliers. But for every one retailer that has made it right, there's another one that hasn't. And even interestingly enough, all of those retailers who haven't done anything have refused to even comment or engage with the public about it. And I think that those retailers need to be boycotted for sure until they until they do it. Well, because their employees are furloughed too, or even worse, laid off. So you're not paying your vendors. You're either your employees are taking a hit on their salary to keep everybody mm-hmm. afloat and you're getting government loans. Yeah. So that that's for me, the like pandemic excuse doesn't stick. If your business was in that unstable financial position that three months puts you out of business, how, how could you have been profitable in the first place? Absolutely. And I will say, uh, without revealing any names, based on my own industry knowledge, I do know some of the retailers that have not paid the factories for these canceled orders do have a pretty intense amount of cash on hand. It's terrible. Like they they could do it, but their uh, stockholders would be unhappy about the dividends around based mm-hmm. on that. Other retailers that I see on that list, I don't have any deep understanding of what's going on under the covers there, but I do know that they have been paying out a lot of dividends to stockholders as well. Oh, you see executive bonuses are still being paid. Yeah. As yes. the companies are going bankrupt. 
and filing right, for bankruptcy. Right. When I was reading about TJ Maxx, they had actually paid out a couple billion dollars in dividends to their stockholders last year. And right before they canceled these orders, they paid out a couple million. So they could have made it work. It's really on us as customers to push them harder and harder. Like, And we do that both by not giving them our money anymore and also by bullying them on social media. I yeah, hate to raise, say bu- raising the yeah, most, bullying, yeah. maybe not being the right term, but being really consistent and going out of our way to ensure that they know that we're unhappy about this. And I do see that. Like, I actually get really excited when I look at some of these retailers' Instagrams and I see the comments, like the cavalcade of com- comments. Me too. Me too. Um, the reality is that, yeah, some of these retailers are hanging on by a thread, but most of them are not. And so they had enough money. They had enough cash flow around to pay out some of that or to figure out something, right? Yeah, and the ones that are doing things the right way are gonna survive and hopefully prosper. And then there's gonna be a whole, there's gonna be a reckoning and hopefully this creates a whole lot of opportunity for new brands and new retailers that that wanna do things differently. Exactly, exactly. It's interesting to me that a lot of these retailers who aren't paying the factories and their vendors are doing it to make their business survive ostensibly. My hope is that they will not be around after this because we are going to start to expect better. So, Celicia, mm-hmm. you have experience working with off, the off-price world. I do. I do in the uh, – my experience is really in product development and getting things made. So being the go-between with vendors, with design, a little bit with the customer, but working as a you know part of a bigger team. But – the, the world of off-price when it comes to product development is very different than than anything any other areas I've ever worked in. So we made, I guess, sportswear. I have so many questions about this because it's so fascinating to me. So, okay, my first question is, did you develop a separate line for the off-price people to buy from? Which is, you'll see that sometimes... Like when I think of sportswear and like athletic shoes, you know, there's always a, a whole group of different lines based on the type of retailer who's buying it. With like tiny different logo changes that, that the customer will never notice. Right, right. Did you guys do that, or would the buyer come to you and say, "This is what I want," and they would develop you would develop it for them? Both. So it just depends. I mean, if you think about Nordstrom and Nordstrom Rack, mm-hmm. the size of the orders that Nordstrom Rack needs are three, four times the size of a Nordstrom order. So we, we didn't even have, we wouldn't have it. Right. So, right. so you'd have to make it or, or extended. Yeah. Or extended sizing. So it was sometimes, you know, there's, there's positive parts to everything, but Nordstrom rack, what they order in a size range is they, they do extended sizing or plus sizing mm-hmm. where Nordstrom doesn't, at least not, you know, places that I've worked. So to be able to fulfill their in their order needs or their volume would hundred percent be made for them. They might see, you know, they might see stuff that they liked, but then when you get back to distribution and brand positioning, you can't have the same thing in the store. Mm-hmm. People are going to try to price shop, which that's a, the whole, um, the income part of this is a little bit complex too, because you can't, you can't price shop because it's made for mm-hmm. them. So a lot of special makeups, there'd be a lot of similarities but to hit their margins, it wasn't possible. So would you use, I mean, I'm probably just being too optimistic here, but would you use excess materials like liability fabric and whatnot to keep costs down? 
whenever we could. So being able to use, you know, it's, it's liability, being able to use that up and, and make a profit on it is, is for sure the goal, but excess material again is not going to make up an order. And it could have been that part of the lot, the color didn't match. There was, you know, shading or the print came out a little bit different than, than we had intended. And we're trying to use it up, like make all of our samples out of that. So to be able to use it up in, you know, a 1200 piece per style color order, it, that's mm -hmm. a, that's a fabric order, you know, that's a new right. fabric lot. So not really hang tags and leftover trims. Absolutely. Like you guys talked about safety pins and strings <laughs> and excess, uh -huh. excess hang tags. Um, we would put those mm -hmm. on anything, anything and everything. Like if we had hang tags sitting around and this is, you know, multiple places because the customer generally shopping, the thrill of the hunt shopping really isn't spending time reading the brand story on the hang tag to know that something changed, you know, something that didn't even really matter, mm -hmm. but the nuances of, you know, the, the importance of brand positioning and consistency and, um, having old hang tags on product at Nordstrom, not okay. Nordstrom wrap, go for it. Right. Interesting. So, so it's not this huge, like sustainable miracle where you're using up all this extra. I mean, you are a little bit. No, absolutely not. But I guess what I'm, I'm guessing here, it's the orders are so big. It's kind of impossible. Yeah. If you want to talk about sustainability, the packaging required for these stores, because they don't have any inventory, you're packing all of the orders to store. So every store is ordering or is being allocated. And from your experience, you might be able to speak to this better, what they need. So they know what the store, I don't know, I mm -hmm. live in Atlanta, the store over on um, Ponce, their square footage and how much inventory they can pack in that store. And it's boxed. I think there's like three units per box so that they're small and they're easy, you know, for them to unpack as they come in, or maybe there's a mm -hmm. little bit of, um, back stock, but yeah, poly bagged or shipped on a hanger in a very particular way, pre-tagged with the compare, compare me at, or suggested retail as much as. <laughs> so all of that, all of those specifications happen when the retailer places an order and it's, it's not, you know, you're not shipping case packs. You're not shipping, you know, in one master carton, your each individual item is like excessively packaged. And then if you, if you could imagine a pallet of like three inch tall boxes and, and the waste there, when like mm -hmm. that could all come in, like whatever, 10 boxes or 20 oh, boxes. I hate that. I hate that. This notion of prepacking, which is what it's called. Usually there's a prepack that's been determined by the retailer. And this is very standard in a lot of places I worked that have stores. The idea that being that each box would contain like, you know, one extra small, two smalls, four mediums, whatever, whatever, you know, like it would be pretty standard. That's because when it comes into the distribution center, it's mm -hmm. cross-docked. So rather than going one way and being unpacked by the warehouse workers mm -hmm. and then, you know, repackaged to go out to the stores, those boxes literally go in one door, go across the dock to the other door where they're stickered and sent out to the stores. And by sticker, I mean like address labels. So great, great point. there are also times when you would just order 
uh, loose is what we call it, where it would just be like we went 50 smalls, 27 extra smalls, you know, whatever. Like those would be more statistically determined by looking at size selling historically. And then those would not cross stock. They would be received into the warehouse and then they would be Mm -hmm. allocated out. So like some stores sell a lot more larger sizes than smaller sizes and vice versa. And so those would be sent to additionally refill in. But these off-price stores aren't really about a replenishment model. They're not constantly getting more inventory of the same thing in. So that wouldn't be happening. Like they would just be doing this cross-stocking. And the cross-stocking, I mean, people who run warehouses will tell you, cross-stocking product saves you so much Mm -hmm. time and manpower money because time is money. Time is people in these situations. But the drawback is these stupid tiny boxes that you're talking about that are just so wasteful. You know, like like in clothing, it might hold up. One of these little boxes might hold six units, maybe 12 units if you're lucky. But when you start talking about accessories, they can be so stupid where there's like three things in a box. It's it's gross. And once again, like cross stocking probably doesn't save a carbon footprint really on any level, but it certainly does use a lot of resources like like plastic and cardboard and labels and whatnot. It saves manpower, which, yeah, I'm sure there's an equation to... Which is a resource, but it's not like an environmental resource. No, it's not like the boxes are getting opened, repalletized, and shipped back to reuse. Um, and they're not like they're flimsy and, you know, post-consumer. They're, they're really structurally sound for these little boxes. <laughs> Oh, totally, because you don't want to the product to get destroyed in transit. And they're they're all printed. They're all barcoded. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty standard, too, more and more especially, for vendors to pre-ticket merchandise, which is to apply the price tags or this price stickers so that, once again, this cross-talking can be seamless. It's also better for products to arrive in stores with price tags already on because there can be too much human error involved there or you know, shrink. People Mm -hmm. might just take things that don't have any labels on them. Once again, having the vendor pre-ticket it while they, of course, the vendor is spending the money and the time, the manpower to put these price tickets on. It saves the retailer a ton of money to not pay someone to do it and to just cross stock it. So it's important to call out that this canceled product that we just were talking about for our pay up, uh, that stuff probably was (laughs) pre-ticketed. Absolutely. And so those factories bought tickets, paid people to apply them. Well, hopefully you're paying people to apply them because now it seems like, you know, they're not getting paid. So no one's getting paid. And so now when they've canceled these orders, these factories, these vendors, these brands have to now pay someone else to take all the price tickets off. And then these tickets are all going in the trash. (laughs) I know it's so gross. (laughs) All of these things that companies mandate in order to save money on their end, money on manpower, like all of these special tiny boxes and packaging to enable cross-stocking, are incredibly environmentally irresponsible. They use a ton of resources. And the companies aren't paying for this packaging. They're also not paying for the manpower. So it's a win-win for them. But we have to imagine all of these boxes and tape and labels and poly bags, they have an environmental price. Even if they were all still magically recycled, Energy is being consumed all in the name of saving on manpower. 
So, okay, well, now that I've we've really bored everybody with logistics talk, <laughs> which I I like I've learned to love logistics because I have seen how they can just destroy a business, destroy the environment. Uh, it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Oh, the price to repair something in the U.S. Like if you have some quality issue happens and it has to go to a repair house or third party logistics, like a 3PL. Oh, it's so expensive. So that might be a good business to be in Mm -hmm. now to deal with all the pre-ticketed merchandise. Yeah, exactly. I mean, or, or they're going to do it in a DC here and the pressure, Mm -hmm. the time Mm -hmm. pressure for people to hit metrics is going to be so high. Oh yeah. it will be terrible. It'd be terrible. So, Okay, we know that the stuff is cheap at these off-price stores. What are the biggest challenges in terms of meeting that pricing? So the margin requirements are usually far higher than than like your traditional wholesale. Oh, really? Yeah. I want to say huh. like uh, 70s for IMUs. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a product that is like for pretend 50% off. Yeah, so so your price, you know, your price point is lower, the margin expectation is still really high even though mm-hmm. your, you know, your volume is, is, has increased. So there's a couple things. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made to differentiate the product cheaper. I mean, quality still depending on the brand, you know, but quality is still always a concern. You know, you don't want people buying things with that mm-hmm. brand name and then having it fall apart. Totally. Depending on the, you know, the savviness of the customer, they're not going to understand why what I bought here is not the same as what I bought here. Mm-hmm. Even if the label is a different color or it has a different logo, logo pattern or, you know, mm-hmm. so trying to, you know, hold your quality standards, hitting, you know, these really high margins, making stuff that's trendy really fast. Like you're doing deliveries every month, not just maybe twice a quarter. So, Mm-hmm. Not to go back to logistics, but duty implications. So like the amount that we or U.S. Com- company would pay to import product, that's a really big implication. Sometimes it's uh, could be 30% um, on top. Oh, yeah. Especially when we're talking about footwear, for example, the duty is really high. Yeah. Footwear, yeah, absolutely. So in apparel, like you have more opportunity to avoid import duty, whether it's where you're making it or just changing up the mm-hmm. fiber content. So poly, 100% poly things, you know, can be gross. Cotton's more expensive. But is there like a happy, happy place where if you get your cotton percentage up just enough, you're going to pay like half the duty rate. So that's where you end up getting really tricky in maybe lighter weight fabrics with a little bit of a, of a content change or instead of, you know, having a 10 color print, you're faking it, you know, with a three color print. There's a lot of nuances that go into trying to hit these really challenging targets. It could be take the pockets off, which I hate. I hate that too. I think that's the hallmark of a cheap garment. It's, yeah. Or, you know, we, oh, it doesn't need to be a two-way zipper. It can be a one-way zipper. Or do we really need to line it here? So do we need, really need an extra button? You know, if you buy button down shirts, 
um, or blouses, do you really need an extra button on the care label? Yeah, that's that's interesting to think about. That level of detail, like that's that's how far you get. Or can we swift tag everything mm-hmm. instead of the nicer whatever string? And so just for everybody, a swift tag is like the plastic, what would you call it? It's like the little plastic sort of string. It used to be a string, but yeah, it's just like a plastic bar almost. Yeah. And you use a little gun that has a needle to put it on. You'll see this still a lot in a lot of bigger retailers. That's how the price tags are held on, you know, like big retailers don't Mm -hmm. have time or resources to using the string and safety pin model for that. (laughs) Imagine you go to like Target and there's just, there's someone in the corner by the fitting rooms tying on all the hang tags. Cause that's what happens when you go to the other retailers that use that. Or even depending on the store too, they might, require like a size sticker mm-hmm. where at a, at an, we're using Nordstrom as a great example, but you wouldn't normally see things that have a sticker on the front that says the size where you might, you might need to do that depending on the retailer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot of nuances in like, yeah, the packaging, they don't pay more just because their packaging and cross stock requirements are crazy. I think that's a really important call out. And these things are expensive. Like, We've talked about how fashion is is really comes down to like the sense. Like we're trying to get every bit of margin that we can and boxes are expensive. You could be paying like I'm trying to remember 60, 70 cents for that for that pack for the pre-pack or that um, pack to store. Right. And remember some of these things they're retailing for like 19.99. Like that's a lot mm-hmm. of money when we unpack the cost. And so I I too have been on the side on the retailer side where I've been asking for all of this pre-pack stuff. And I have in no way offered to pay an additional cost for that. No, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the next question I have for you, Salisha, is I, I'm guessing I already know what the answer is here, but was the turnaround time for this stuff fast? Like, is it fast fashion? It, I mean, it has to be on trend, whatever that means, to the, the different stores. So it could be their own trends. I mean, we worked uh, with some retailers. They provided their own trend guides in their own, you know, cause they design their own product too. So they pass along, mm-hmm. you know, their designers trend for the season to design into even like Bloomingdale's, um, you'd be designing into that. Some, some would even plan out. I'm going to take this many for this month and I'm going to take this many, whatever, three months later, that's going to go mm-hmm. to, to the outlet. So right. the pressure to be designing so much closer to market hit these margins, try to save on freight. You're moving so fast. And also a lot of brands aren't very forthcoming with their calendars um, because they <laughs> want to buy, you know, what, what can you ship to me this week? They want to buy as close to, to, mm-hmm. to market as possible. So monthly drops, trying to chase them for a calendar or for their style out meetings where, I wish I wish we had imagery to share, but it's like imagine, yeah, like a hundred brands sending their proposals all at once to somebody like TJ Maxx to go through and just shop the wall of what they're gonna end up buying. And mm-hmm. and then placing their purchase orders, you know, less than lead time. You know, they have due we have due dates that we'd share with them. Hey, I need you to approve this. We, I sent you the sample yesterday. A week goes by, another week goes by. The buyer can't find it to ship another one. (laughs) The vendor, the vendor three, you know, twice a day is like, you're holding up production. I'm just going to make it. And then we'll, 
take our chances. So yeah, time, absolutely a pressure. Yeah. The style out meeting is a regular part of the buying life cycle, the buying calendar. And, and much like Celicia said, you get all these samples and proposals from all the different brands. You may have seen some of the stuff at market and pulled it. They might also just be sending stuff to you that you had asked about or based on inspiration you sent. And you are in the best case scenario, literally putting this all up on a wall and picking the things that you want to buy. And then going back to your desk and kind of working this into your receipt plan and figuring out what the assortment's going to be. And then your poor assistant has to ship back all those samples, which at that point, you as the buyer have jumbled up into a big mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Packages get lost. The wrong things get returned to the wrong vendors. I mean, I could go on and on. And it could also just be like your one PP sample that yes. like, you really need back. Yeah. That kind of stuff has happened where in a lot of situations, this is the only sample that the vendor had. And now it got lost by UPS or... Your assistant accidentally sent it to another brand, which happens a lot. And it's no one's fault except for maybe the buyer for making a big mess of everything. There's just a lot of ways this process can fall apart along the way and be incredibly stressful for the vendor specifically. Oh, and also, I mean, from from you, you go back to your desk, you're working the numbers and you might go, you know what? I like that, but I really need it at this price because none of the (laughs) pricing is solidified at that point. That's a good point, too. So we'll get all this pushback that they want to, they're ready to write the order, but they needed it at this. I need to hit this. I need to hit this margin. What can the vendor do? Yeah. And I, I would say that that's definitely what I would do. I would say, okay, now that I know what I'm going to buy, I can actually sit down and say, I'm going to buy 10,000 units of this. Like, what can we do? Whereas at market, you're just pulling everything you think might work and you have no rhyme or reason at that moment about how many units you're going to buy. Like you can't commit to anything. I hate when you're at a vendor appointment and they're like, well, what cost do you want? And you're like, uh, I, I don't know, maybe $5. I'm not sure yet. You know, it's, it's tough for both people. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that all goes back to like the pressure of the consumer or their shareholders mm-hmm. and, and us needing that nine ninety nine shirt that, really is maybe like a twenty nine ninety nine shirt. Absolutely. I mean, we have been so spoiled into all of these cheap and plentiful clothing options. But what we need to realize is we need to stop that. <laughs> clothes should be more expensive than they are. But because we keep pushing, that's why we end up with plastic clothes that with broken zippers that we can only wear three times. Mm-hmm. I also just wanted to ask, thinking about, you know, you're already developing this stuff for, for these off-price retailers. Is there any opportunity to unload some unsold stuff to them that's like first quality or is Absolutely. Yeah. So they'll depending on the store and the buyer, they'll want to know like uh what do you have in ATS available to ship? Mm-hmm. So there might be maybe a smaller smaller brand or some boutique sent some sent some goods back. There might have been something where we just didn't like the way it came out. We had already bought it for our own inventory mm-hmm. for you know full price, and we can offer it. There might be broken size runs that sometimes they'll take. Depend, you know, if you get more into like big lots and that different different tier, mm-hmm. you know, there could just be random things like, well, we have a bunch of two X and up, or mm-hmm. maybe a product line that that we're not going to move forward with next season, facing it out. So, absolutely, yeah, they would fully take stuff we had in stock. But at deep, deep discounts. Right, because they're not getting a full-size run. 
So Correct. it's sort of what, how much they can sell already has a ceiling on it because of that. Plus they still have all those shipping and packaging requirements. Ugh, great. So you're doing all that in the U S where it costs twice, twice the price to mm-hmm. do or maybe more, you know, the labor's three times higher, hopefully more, but I'm just making that number up. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's, it, it's at least three times higher. <laughs> okay. So now let's talk about something that is the most mysterious of all, all things. And we've touched on this a little bit when you're shopping at the off price, those compare at tags, because I'm a buyer and I will look at these compare at tags and I'll be like, that's such bullshit. <laughs> I just thought about it. There's probably some legal background to it of why it says compare at. Right. I think you might be right. I think there probably is because I feel like they used to say more often, and I could be wrong, but maybe I'm remembering this incorrectly. They used to say manufacturer suggested retail price. And I yeah. think that maybe as we started to find more and more product in these stores that wasn't overstock or closeout, they probably couldn't say that anymore because the manufacturer wasn't suggesting that retail price. Exactly. Yeah. So I do think that there was a shift somewhere in the in the history of off price. So with less product actually coming from department stores and specialty retailers, off-price retailers are struggling to make that compare-at price relate to anything. Because it's made for them. What do you compare it right, to? Right, right. And so unsurprisingly, this has made it a challenge for off-price brands to shift into e-commerce because a person can easily Google a product and realize that there's no real compare at price to compare to. If it wasn't sold anywhere else at this compare-at price, then... It, it's just like smoke and mirrors, I guess. It's fake. I think it's how all the mattress stores work. So you can't price shop mattresses because they're the same, like, you know, big brands that we are familiar with. Mm-hmm. But the actual uh, features of one to the other or the price points or the brand names or the subcategory names, none of it compares. So like Costco too, you can't really price shop at Costco because that TV model is made for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Same thing with their computers and drugs and food. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all made for them. So you can't, you, it, the drums of food. So you can't, you can't really price shop because the same uh, size of an item doesn't exist or it's their own brand and it's a little bit different. Yeah. And I think that's a lot more common than we might think. Costco is a really good example because they can kind of skirt around it by saying like, oh, but you couldn't buy a three pack of this conditioner anywhere else. So how would you know at the compare at price? Yep. So something that as we have as consumers shifted more into buying stuff online, and I've seen this like happen during my career, something we had to become more cognizant of was making sure we marked down our stuff at the same time everybody else did. And there's no like rule about it. Like it's not like you sell Levi's on your website and Levi sends you an email and says, okay, everybody, now you can mark it down. Like that's not how it works. So in a lot of places I've worked, we've literally had to have someone on the buying team Googling this branded product every week to see what was on sale and send out emails to us to the rest of the team, like, hey, uh, these Levi's are now uh, 25% off at Nordstrom. We better do the same thing. And that's because most people are going to look for that deal. I'm part of it too. If there's something specific that is a nationally recognized brand that I want to buy, I'm going to Google it and see where I can get the lowest price or free shipping. I mean, these are all, these are all part of it. For sure. And also, I mean, even one, one more 
level to that is who do I want to give my money to? Like if I can buy something at like the like local Ace mm-hmm. Hardware and it's not radically different in price, like I'd rather do that than a bigger box store. Mm-hmm. And you have the ability like just, yeah, price shop, what's the most convenient, but then also who do I want to give my money to? Right, right. And buying stuff online makes that so much easier. It, it just takes a second. But when you're starting to buy stuff in real life, you're not at TJ Maxx Googling this shirt because it's not like it has a name associated with it. You could even Google. You'd have to be like floral button up shirt and then a brand. What's that going to bring you, right? So this has been really challenging for these off-price retailers to shift into e-commerce because customers can't Google and sort of background check this product. And customers want this level of transparency, whether it's true transparency or all a scam as well, but they like the reviews and the clear pricing, which you can get from Amazon, for example, right? You can find out all the different people are selling it, what the price is. You can read how it fit. And once again, I know there's all kinds of scammy, sketchy stuff happening under the covers there too. You know, people are being paid to write reviews, uh, bad reviews getting deleted. There's weird stuff around pricing. Like I know that, but we're all accustomed to being able to do that now. So when TJ Maxx sells stuff online that you can't compare at, you know, it seems fake to us Mm -hmm. because it is. So Nordstrom Rack actually does really well with e-com because they hone their assortment for their website to primarily sell highly recognized brands that you can easily Google. And I would say this is where they focus their closeout product. Oh, okay. You aren't going to see a lot of those other rando brands and filler that you might see when you go into the store. That's not going to be on the site because they're going to, they're going to say Adidas, Nike, free people. Like, you know, these are just brands I've gotten emails from them about recently. Yeah. That's really smart. It is really smart. They've got some geniuses working at Nordstrom. I'm telling you. <laughs> so TJ Maxx just started e-com recently, but Ross hasn't tried it yet at all. I would be surprised if they go into that. However, stores have been closed. And so retailers who normally would shy away from e-commerce have had to try it. Then there's Burlington Coat Factory who tried to... This one I read, it was really interesting. I thought it was really interesting. They tried to have a website and they shut it down early this year, like right before coronavirus, actually. It just wasn't working for them because... It was hard to mock up that sense of scarcity and deals, deals, deals online that you get in the store. Like imagine using the food at TJ Maxx as an example, right? You couldn't on your website just put one unit of each thing available for sale and then have it go away. No. And they they even quoted like our customers come to us for the experience. Yeah. It's all about the thrill of the hunt. And so when you sell stuff online, Mm -hmm. you can't make it look like you only have one left because then you'd have to have someone reactivate the style the next day. You're constantly, yeah, you'll be constantly out of stock. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't work. So you couldn't, I remember I was saying earlier that a mixed pack of goods for a buyer is like a nightmare because how do you sell that in real life? It makes sense because you're like, oh, there's only one olive oil with basil in it here. Like I got to get it now. You know, you can't, you can't do that on the site. Early on, I think I went on, I don't remember which one it was. It might've been TJ Maxx. I might've read something and then was like, oh, I wonder what they're doing. The website was shut down and it said they had maxed out on orders per day. And I wonder if it came, you know, that, that mixed pack thing was their their challenge because they hadn't allocated enough goods to e-com. 
Ah, But the website would shut down at whatever time each day because they maxed out on orders that they were accepting. Also, the people that needed to fulfill that their daily intake, I guess, of, of TJ Maxx. I imagine that a lot of people are there multiple times a week. So when that got taken away from them, they were trying to um, fulfill that, that need. And the website just couldn't handle it would be my second guess. Yeah, no, I think that's true. One of the sort of headlines that I kept seeing as the world started to slowly reopen is every headline was about lines like three blocks long at Ross and TJ Maxx. And I read interviews with people who had been waiting in line and had been saying like the saddest thing that they had experienced from quarantine is that they couldn't go to Ross like they did every payday. This is a regular part of people's lifestyle. And I get it because for me, it's always been thrifting is like that. You know, it's pretty standard for us to go thrifting every Saturday as a family. And when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. I'd go to the Salvation Army every time I got paid to buy new clothes. I stop at every Army-Navy store, I see. See? See? So I, I get it. Like It's like a way of life. It's almost less about the stuff and more about the fun of it. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about when, it, when we come to Off Price? We got to the end of our outline. If it's 75% and it's going up, that's probably going to increase. The staffing needs are so different, but I don't know if that's just some whole other thing. Nordstrom also laid off a bunch of people. We were just, I don't know if we were like talking up Nordstrom a lot, but they did big rounds of layoffs. I mean, everyone did. I think that there are more layoffs happening than we're hearing about because I know a lot of Uh, fashion and retail professionals who have been let go recently. And I see it on LinkedIn, but I'm not seeing articles about it that a lot of these people who had more like sort of white collar jobs. Yeah. Head offices or. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't really seen any coverage of those people, but I'm here to say that like the white collar layoffs that everybody says are coming in the future are already here and have been. Already started, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and no one's really broadcasting it because maybe they're not laying ev- off everyone the same day. They're just laying off a few people every week. But my LinkedIn feed is just blowing up with people who are like, I'm looking for it. I mean, it's, custom- it's from customer service, yeah, all the way to headquarters, you know, like corporate positions, not even yeah. on the retail floor. Mm-hmm. Something something else I just thought of, what is their mask game like? Their mask game must be on point, right? Yeah, I mean, it must be, right? I, I would assume. There's got to be a whole section of masks in every one of those stores. You know what? I'm j- I feel like I saw someone post a picture of masks at TJ Maxx. And they had Hello Kitty ones. That's, how it, that's why it's sticking in my brain. It's cute. But they must have, yeah, I mean, imagine all the stuff they were canceling and they were like, but we need masks. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they do. They do. If you're any smart retailer, you're selling masks right now. Something I talk about a lot with my friends who also work in the industry is how it seems like some retailers are just smarter about like social trends than others. And so, for example, some retailers are like, shit, we better start speaking to sustainability in one way or another by like putting out a collection every season that's sustainable or talking about how we don't use plastic bags anymore. Like, you know, there's always something going on there, but then other retailers who, whose customers definitely care about that kind of stuff are not speaking to it at all. Like does Nordstrom ever speak to sustainability? Do they have like a sustainable like department at their stores? Do they speak about ethical manufacturing and stuff like that? Probably not. No, but I think they, I think they're better than, than most. 
Costco doesn't, but I'm a fan of Costco. Costco pays their workers like one of the highest rates, if not highest hourly in that kind of retail Mm -hmm. setting or retail world. Their hours aren't insane. They're not opened on holidays. I have I have a friend's family actually, and uh, their their best friends also are in manufacturing, and they're huge suppliers to Costco. One's in food, and one's in like outdoorsy kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the requirements to supply to Costco are so complicated. Their their standards, the transparency in the supply chain. This is mm-hmm. obviously not 100% across the board, but they they need to know everything. You have to supply um, documentation all along the way. They do their own inspections of their suppliers' factories, so they don't talk about it. It's part, you know, social environmental responsibilities. You know, it 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 all affects one thing or the other, but at least you can feel a little bit better knowing that. They have very solid, um, robust standards. Can't say that for everybody. Just because a factory passes a great inspection doesn't mean it treats people, you know, well. I don't want to derail into the world of paper products that are all made by Coke Industries around the world. Cut that all out. Yeah, I couldn't say about about sustainability in Nordstrom's, but... I think it's interesting that some... Retailers have said, oh, we're smart. We know that our customers care about this. So we're going to, to be clear, I do not think that this means that these brands are genuinely engaging in earth-friendly processes for everything they do. But they will say like, oh, we're going to create this collection. Like think about H&M, who literally burns all their unsold inventory, has like an eco-conscious collection. Yeah, it's so counterintuitive. American Eagle is doing a little capsule of that. And Levi's does some organic denim. Some, I mean, some like sustainable denim. Levi's, I would say the investments that they've made or their interest. I think a lot of companies do it because it's the right thing. Not just to have like, mm-hmm. oh, these three shirts are sustainable. But Levi's, you know, their whole push of like waterless denim washes. That's pretty huge. And it's something that like as a customer, you might not care about or even doesn't change the reason you're buying something or not, but they're doing it, you know, to save, of course, money, you know, in, in production, but because I think they actually have some intention of caring. I don't think anything would change anywhere until people speak up and you tell, you know, this store, like, I I want you to care about what I care about. Right. Right. And it's interesting. I'm going to be honest. None of the places I have worked have done anything to change their processes to make them more sustainable. They haven't even gone to the lip service of making a sustainable collection, right? Damn. I think it's kind of similar with this mask thing. If you're smart, if the people who work for your company are smart, you're gonna you're selling masks right now, right? There are tons of places that are still not selling masks. And I'm like, guys, you're like, even if you don't care about public health, you're like leaving money on the table. Yeah. Cause people are buying them and they're they want it to be part of you know, how they present themselves to the world. Yeah. Like for example, I was looking at Uniqlo the other day and I was like, oh, I wonder what their mask situation is. They don't have masks. What? I know. See? Sorry. (laughs) What? I know. Crazy. Right. Right. Wait, I'm trying to think because I've been to Uniqlo's around the world. Mm -hmm. They make everything. I know. I know. Uh, And I, 
I mean, after that happened, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to just search a bunch of other retailers that I can think of off the top of my head. And most of them did not sell masks. Meanwhile, I go to Target. The whole entry is masks. You know, like, because I'm trying to process this right now. <laughs> Uniqlo doesn't have masks. It's crazy. It's a Japanese company. I know. I searched they... masks. You know what the search results brought up? Like some scarves. Like they know they're aware that they don't have masks. Someone reworked. No, I their think search. I think email. I think email marketing wise, that's all I get is masks. these brands that I like that are making masks. Yeah, no. Or Instagram, Instagram ads about masks from companies I've never heard of. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And today, in 2020, during a pandemic, to not be selling masks is so cuckoo to me. Once again, I'm like, guys, it's not just about the trends that you see on the runway that you need to somehow be delivering to, which is a miss usually anyway, it's also social trends and what society is asking you to do. If you're wondering why you didn't hear Celicia and I say goodbye, etc., well... <laughs> It's because we went down a whole rabbit hole about people buying woke political feminist teas, but not vetting the source of them. Like, was your feminist tea ethically and sustainably made? TBH, odds are high it was not. And I had to cut that part because we were naming some brands who might not like being called out, but just something to think about. Anyway, thank you so much, Celicia. It was so great to work with you on this episode. Before I call it a day, I wanted to update you on something exciting that is happening in California right now. You know, I thought I needed to counterbalance all the doom and gloom in the first half of the episode. As we've discussed in the past, Los Angeles has the highest concentration of garment industry workers in the country. About 2,000 manufacturers employ more than 40,000 workers. And unsurprisingly, most of them are immigrant women. They spend 10 to 12 hours a day dyeing, cutting, and sewing clothes and the price ranges all over the place, from premium denim to super cheap fast fashion. These workers have always been subject to wage theft and other abuses. In 1999, an assembly bill was enacted to end the wage theft in the garment industry, and it was a landmark worker protection law. But in the 20 years since the law was passed, manufacturers have done just about everything they can to skirt the law and keep costs low. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. And it makes sense because we have seen clothing get cheaper and cheaper. They've done this by creating complex, it's, it's almost impossible to untangle, subcontracting setups and implementing a by-the-piece way of paying workers rather than an hourly wage. Workers earn as little as three cents, yes, I said three cents, for each assembly operation. So that could be setting a seam, trimming a blouse, adding buttons. So they're going to get paid three cents for each time they do that. It's so low that it does not even allow a worker to reach the minimum wage in an hour, even if they work nonstop as fast as possible. Even worse, workers often don't know how much they'll be paid week to week because the rates are changed by employers without notice. It's very common for employers to reduce already promised rates while the sewing is actually happening. Can you imagine that? Finding out after you did the work that you're going to get paid half as much? Once again, 
This happens because brands press manufacturers for lower prices, prices that are so low that labor becomes unaffordable. And certainly fairly paid labor is out of the question with the kind of prices we're demanding, right? This low pay rate creates unsafe conditions as workers race without sleep or other breaks to try to make a living wage. And in the era of COVID, this means they can't even take a break to wash their hands or sanitize their workstation, making them even more vulnerable to illness. We've talked about the coronavirus outbreak at LA Apparel where more than 300 employees were infected. Well, there's good news. The Garment Worker Center we've talked about them in the past, is working to pass SB 1399, which will strengthen current law to ensure protections of garment workers in three ways. First, it will expand liabilities, ensuring that retailers cannot use layers of subcontracting to avoid liability. So this means that retailers could be held responsible for wage theft and safety violations. In the past, they have not because they've sort of been like, oh, we didn't know. You know, we're not the people technically employing these workers. We didn't even know who the subcontractor was. Manufacturers will no longer be able to use these complicated mazes of subcontracting to shield the retailer from liability. Next, it will prohibit the use of paying garment workers by the piece, and instead they will be paid an hourly wage. It's a really big deal. Now, of course, if that hourly wage is minimum wage, yes, That's an improvement over where they've been. But once again, minimum wage is not livable wage. It is really almost nearly impossible to pay rent, especially in LA, and all of your other expenses on a minimum wage. So just think about that too. But still, it's an improvement. Lastly, it will authorize the Labor Commissioner's Bureau of Field Enforcement to investigate and issue citations for wage theft. This is such incredible work right now because nine out of 10 garment workers, that's 90% for you percentage lovers, are not even making minimum wage. And as I've said, I like to say it a lot so we don't forget, minimum wage is not even a livable wage. And yet we're paying people less than that because we need to get these clothes made cheaply. I'm going to share links to the Garment Worker Center and how you can get involved in the show notes. Let's throw our support behind this by emailing politicians, especially you California listeners, and spreading the word on social media. I mean, I am so excited about this. It's a baby step, but it's a start. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also send us feedback, suggestions, and cute animal photos via email at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Or find us on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. And new, we have a website, clotheshorsepodcast.com. It feels so fancy and legit. Once again, this is primarily going to be a destination for our directory of good brands, but you can also find links to all of our episodes there. So it might be easier for you to stream them that way. Thank <laughs> you.